I'm Autumn Brown, a queer science fiction writer, a theologian, a mother of dragons, and a healing justice facilitator for social movements living in Minneapolis. And I'm Adrian Marie Brown, a writer, student of miracles and love, emergent strategist, pleasure activist, paying rent in Detroit. And this is How to Survive the End of the World. Our podcast about learning from apocalypse with grace, rigor, and curiosity. Today we have a pretty exciting interview that we're bringing to our beloved survivors. Um, And this feels like a really on-time and on-point conversation to be having in this political moment and in this moment in global history. Uh, In a few moments, we're going to be hearing from the editors of Beyond Survival, Strategies and Stories from the Transformative Justice Movement. Jaris Dixon and Leah Lakshmi Piepsna Samarsina put together this collection that features the voices of so many amazing organizers, activists, writers, long-term transformative justice workers, um, sharing the wisdom, the pain, and the transformation from the work that folks have been doing in community for Um, many decades now. Um, Before we get into the interview, we wanted to just share a little bit more about Ejeris and Leah. So Ejeris Dixon is an organizer, consultant, a political strategist. She brings 20 years of experience organizing within racial justice, LGBTQ transformative justice, anti-violence, and economic justice movements. She's the founding director of Vision Change Win Consulting, where she partners with organizations to build their capacity and deepen the impact of their organizing strategies. And her essay, Building Community Safety, Practical Steps Toward Liberatory Transformation, was featured in the anthology, Who Do You Serve? Who Do You Protect? Police Violence and Resistance in the United States. And Leah Lakshmi Piepsna Samarasinha is the Lambda Award-winning author of Care Work, Dreaming Disability Justice, as well as Dirty River, A Queer Femme of Color Dreaming Her Way Home, and Body Map, and Love Cake, and Consensual Genocide, and co-editor of The Revolution Starts at Home, Confronting Intimate Violence in Activist Communities. A lead artist with the Disability Justice Collective Sins Invalid, she's a longtime cultural worker, educator, and organizer within disability and transformative justice communities. And we got to spend a really deep and provocative hour talking with them about the process of bringing this book into the world during a pandemic, the experience of doing this book at this time. how important, how relevant, and how everything is changing, and what does it mean to be providing a tool about transformative justice when everything is changing. So it's a really beautiful conversation. Um, We think that you'll learn a lot from it. So get your notebooks ready, be ready to learn. Where we want to begin is just to ask y'all how you define transformative justice. 
and what you believe to be the conditions that actually make transformative justice possible and what are the conditions that make transformative justice as a practice impossible? Hmm. I can start with definitions and things. You want to join in after Leah? Yeah, that sounds great. Uh, so um, I really think of transformative justice as a framework uh, that um, includes strategies on how we prevent and intervene and hold people accountable and heal from violence and harm and also how we address not just um, the an incident of violence, but how we also transform like the social context and conditions that fuel and feed kind of a culture of violence um, and how we do all of those things without relying on state systems. So uh, police, prisons, um, so that's, that's my, and I think many of our definition of transformative justice, um, yeah, I can keep it to Leah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's mine too. Um, I think some things I would add to my definition are that, um, and, you know, I mean, this is the thing. I mean, there's, a, I think a lot of us who've been doing TJ work for a while, we kind of agree. There's a midline where we agree in and there's places where it's like, oh, differences of opinion. Um, so for me, you know, something that's not that I, I think that I'm not necessarily in agreement with, with some other folks who are people I respect in TJ is that I don't think that transformative justice always has to mean that the perpetrator transforms in a deep way. Um I think that can absolutely be part of it. And I, and I say this because, you know, for years going back when I'd be a part of doing, you know, what is transformative justice 101 workshops, we would talk about, so part of TJ is this idea of there's no place to throw people away. If someone is violent or abusive or rapes, you know, we, we want to actually have as part of the work, a deep transformation um, with that person of, okay, what made you do that? And how do you change so that doesn't happen again? And I'm not throwing that out. I still want that. That's incredibly important. However, um, I think that I want to complicate it a little bit. And I feel like for me, I'm coming from a more harm reduction place where, you know, the way I often phrase what is TJ is, I'm like, it's anything that creates more safety, justice, and or healing for people who survive violence, abuse, or harm that doesn't rely on the cops or courts, right? So that's, and so jumping back to the like, it could be that the perpetrator transforms, or it could just be that the survivor got out alive, right? Um, I, I, it's been important for me to say that lately as like an add-on, because I think that when, I think that in emphasizing transforming perpetrators, right, as like, you must do that, I think that that's not wrong, but I think in practice, sometimes people really feel like, well, shit, that they didn't. So I guess we failed, right? Uh -huh. And I think uh -huh. that then we don't uh -huh. see, but the survivor's alive. The survivor got out of the relationship. The survivor was able to set up structures where they were able to like live and work and be free and heal, right? And those are wins, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I've seen, you know, one place that, 
I think a lot of us have probably heard pushback is there's been a critique that I've heard that I really understand where people are like, well, when you frame TJ as being about transforming the perpetrator, isn't that just focusing on the, oh, if we just love them enough, they'll change. And I'm, and it's a trick for me because I'm like, God, when I started when I started work in 1997, before transformative justice was a word, that was the complete opposite of what we were doing. Like I, I as a survivor, was pushing back against people in my community who were like, well, have you tried healing your abusive ex through love? So I was like, oh, this is a trip. Yeah. But at the same time, I was like, oh, I absolutely see where you're coming from. Because I don't think anyone means for it to be that way. But I think right. it can play out that way. And it makes me think about... Um, you know, like I'm a long-term survivor of childhood sexual abuse and my parents who are my abuse perpetrators are both probably going to die without ever, you know, doing the thing that so many childhood sexual abuse, childhood abuse survivors want, which is, you know, you want the, the, the family members, the perpetrators to be like, you're right. I did it. I'm sorry. It was wrong. I don't think they're ever going to do that. And in the past year and finding out that my folks who I've been long-term estranged from are getting to end of life, I've really been sitting with some really tough moments around like, well, we're going to, they're going to die and they're never going to say sorry. And does that mean, I mean, that just sucks. And does that mean I failed, you know? And then, um, Mm -hmm. you know, a really good friend of mine, um, Rebel Cindy Black, who's in Portland was just like, yeah, you know, when you think about it, like they were like, "I I really get that. But they were like, think about it this way, like your life, is your justice. Like, look at the life you created for yourself. That's justice. And it doesn't depend on them ever admitting what they did or not. And when when they reframed that that way for me, I was like, oh, that's really important because it's really, and I think, I want to be really clear. I think that transformative justice practitioners have emphasized this throughout the whole time I've been in the movement. But I I want us to keep saying that because it's like, it's not just we're not just waiting for the rapist to be like, oh, I'm sorry, I get it, I was wrong. Because if they do it, great. If they don't, or if it takes a while, or if they do it and they go back, it's like the both and of, we can also be like, and I helped reclaim my life and my community through non-state solutions, through my friends, you know, through spirit, through all the badass survival stuff I did. Um, so yeah, that's, that's some of my TJ stuff. I think self-defense is TJ. I want to say real quick, I think self-defense is TJ. I think, you know, I'm always like, if, if you have ever told somebody hassling someone at the bus stop, Hey, can you shut up? That's TJ. You know, I think Uh as Jared said, building community safety strategies and squads, um, proactively is transformative justice. Um, Something we were really, really adamant about including a lot of in the book was creating um, resources for mental health disability, for emotional crisis that don't rely on calling 911 is transformative justice, right? Yes. Um, I'll stop there. But yeah, it's a lot of things. It's a a really big ecosystem. It's not just (laughs) you take out the cops and you replace something that's like fits in the same spot as the cops, but it's a different color. It's like, no, it's a completely different worldview. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think Thank you. Yeah, go ahead. Um, for me, I think particularly as an, an as an organizer, when when people are, I think that some people are focusing on, oh, the that the person who's caused harm hasn't transformed this way, but there's a way that it's it's almost like a service provision model mm-hmm. of reducing the work. Right. As opposed to like, we know that there are so many conditions that 
like create a more violent society. And there's so many places where like for every person who's caused harm, there are people in their lives who've looked away from it, right? Mm -hmm. And and so I think it's also about what is the role of kind of the you know community and what is what what are all of these other and additional roles and uh, you guys had asked us kind of what are the conditions that make TJ possible or what makes it impossible and I feel it like a um, Miriam talks a lot about. Um, TJ is possible in relationship, and mm-hmm. so I have I have a history of doing this work with um, stranger-based violence, which is com- complex because you're like, what's the relationship? But there's so much of the work that's actually like building relationships between people and building relationships mm-hmm. between communities because people change and we change conditions um, in connection. And I think there's another piece around like what makes TJ more possible is also practice, right? Like we practice yeah. this work, we practice learning, we practice deepening, we learn from our mistakes. Um, and so I just think there's, um, and and that's why I think it can be really challenging when people are deciding, well, I'm going to hold this person accountable, but I have no connection, no yep. relationship, no practice no knowledge you know what I mean mm-hmm. so there's there's a piece that is it's it's pretty impossible to commit to TJ without also committing to the relationship building work mm-hmm. and the practice of like um like this the small and big parts of practicing transformation beautiful I really appreciate like the the way that y'all bring in these definitions and pointing out that there are so many different ways that people are holding the work right now. And I think y'all started to get into this in different ways as you were sharing. Um, but one of the things that that I think about with this a lot is like, we're really, you know, there's a lot of work behind us and we're still really early in this process of learning, defining, understanding, finding shared language, common language, and that most people, a lot of people are still working from, well, here's what I did. You know, here's what I've actually done and here's what brought me to it. And I think that was fine, (laughs) you know, and what we'd love to give our listeners some context of is where y'all enter into that conversation. Like what brought you to transformative justice in the first place? What brought you to the ideas and work of abolition and transformative justice from your own lives? Um, I can start. I, so I was, I was just talking with friends recently where we both realized that we both were politicized around abolition. I think at the 1999 critical resistance East conference. Mm. So, um, and I remember just being, really excited and really learning so much there. But I I don't know if I had a strong definition of myself as a survivor at that point, but I think it was also because I had a real deep invested interest of um, identifying with feeling strong, what quote unquote strong, right? Mm. And, uh, um, and, and I think that was how um, like I, I needed to feel well, like, um, like that—that's how I felt survivorship. If that made any sense, it makes any yes, sense. Yes, totally. Um, <laughs> yep. Um, and so I eventually, like, I, I, 
have a, a, a bit of a, a weirder entry point where I got a, I got asked to apply to a job at the Audrey Lord Project where they had a really long history of doing work around police violence. There had been a series of attacks of queer and trans people of color, mostly black and Latinx folks mm-hmm. in central Brooklyn and wanted to do work that was in alignment with their police violence work to address the kind of rise in interpersonal violence that was happening. So I was like, okay, great. Like I had, I was like a longtime organizer at that point, like hardcore into campaigns. I was like, great. What's the campaign? What's the model? Who's done it before? How do we, you know, all that, <laughs> right? And yep. uh, it was, I was like, wait, wait, we got to figure it out. Like ourselves, like build it, you know, um, because there weren't a lot of models for stranger based work and that's often what's happening in in many forms of homophobic and transphobic violence Mm -hmm. um so that's and and i think through that process of like literally being on my street and recruiting friends and loved ones and outreach in the club at 3 a.m and all of those things i started to understand my own self as a survivor and understand a broader sense of the work and through building conversations and strategies with other folks in community um, around how we were gonna keep each other safe, what do we do if we're running from violence? What do we do if someone's been attacked and we want to support them? Um, how do we get each other home safely? Uh, like that's, that's how I came to the work. Thank you so much for sharing and, and for the vulnerability in that sharing. Um, and Leah, I know you, you shared some, but is there stuff that you want to add to that? Yeah, it's funny. Um, when you were posing that question, the first thing that came to mind was like, wow, two things. One was, um, being a survivor of abuse in my family and growing up in a family where it was like, you never call the cops and you never tell anyone what's going on because social services will come and put you in foster care. The end, which is, Uh which is the double-edged sword of, man, I really needed to tell somebody and I did, but also, you know, the double-edged sword of my family is that my mom, both my parents, but especially my mom really had a political analysis of the system and was just like, you lie to doctors, you lie to everybody. You can't trust the state coming to your front door. And then the second thing I thought of, which you can totally laugh at was, um, so I was a scholarship kid and I was very much on the train of you do every single school activity possible so you can qualify for as much financial aid as possible. So I was, yes, in Amnesty International in grade 10. Yeah. Oh my God. (laughs) Yes. Like everything. (laughs) And, um, and my parents were very locked down, controlling, but I could get permission to go out for school activities. So there was this Amnesty International Youth Conference in Boston, which is, you know, 50 minutes away from Worcester, where I grew up, but it might as well have been the moon, but I got permission to go. And there was this workshop on U.S. Oh. political prisoners. And I came back and I was like, have you ever heard of this person named Mumia Abu-Jamal? It was 1991, you know? And uh-huh, uh-huh. from that, um, in, that led to, you know, in college, I, went, I, I was at NYU on scholarship. And in the, you know, 1994, 1995, anti-Giuliani, CUNY coalition, um, anti-police brutality work, um, really just getting initiated into a lot of leftist, black and brown, anti-police brutality work. And then I moved to Toronto and 
got involved in the prison justice movement there through a newspaper called Prison News Service that was a big prison abolitionist, prisoner-led paper. Um, and I think it's interesting because like, I can kind of see me going back and forth between the really personal stuff that was like, I mean, the places I got radicalized were around being a survivor, right? But they were really private. But I really was just like, the world is abusive and the world creates conditions mm. for my family and these white boys at school and all these things to be abusive. And then I was just this like really channeling the trauma a lot as a young person, especially in the nineties where it was like, Oh, you don't talk about the personal stuff. Like I actually got told as an adult, mm. you should move to California. They care about feelings there. From my comrades. Um, but they were kind of in separate lanes. But then when I started doing more healing, both around my childhood sexual abuse and around being in, I mean, the main thing I often add is that I was in a relationship that became abusive physically um, with somebody who I was, you know, a movement comrade who was my lover and who was, you know, had already done time, was a working class queer kid of color and who was my immigration sponsor. So I was just like, well, I can't call the cops on you because you'll be arrested and I'll be deported. So I guess I'm going to have to figure right. something else out. And I mean, that's the bird that's being brought into TJ, which is, I think so many people's have a version of that in coming into TJ of this wasn't, and it's been interesting, you know, as the movements progressed and people know about it now and know the words where people, sometimes there's that assumption that, get thrown at us of like, oh, well, you just think the cops are bad from this like academic standpoint or something. You don't care about survivors. And I'm always mm-hmm. like, no, everyone I know who, you know, created, co-created TJ got into it because we were survivors. Um, yeah. Jairus, I've heard you use the phrase before, like I was a queer black kid trying to get home alive. And I was like, yeah, I was a queer brown femme trying to like stay alive. And that's where it came from. And it was really the, yeah. Yeah. let's see what works. You know, because we know the cops really aren't. So let's figure it out. Yep. Beautiful. Wow. Well, and that's uh, such a, you know, knowing this this particular piece of, um, you know, the, the mutual story of, of entering this both as organizers and as survivors, we would love to hear the two of you talk a little bit about how you came into partnership in this work around transformative justice specifically, like how did you start working together? And at what point in your journey in this work um, did you decide that you wanted to create a book together? Yes. So, um, you know, some folks I know with Ching Yi Chen and Jai Dolani, I was, I'm one of the co-editors of a zine that became a book called The Revolution Starts at Home, Confronting Activist Violence. Sorry, Confronting Intimate Violence and Activist Violence. <laughs> 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 it's intimate too, but yeah. <laughs> Which, um, you know, started in 2004 as an idea where... I had left my, I had been free of my abusive relationship for five years, but he was still in Toronto. We still, you know, ran into each other and it was just kind of like at a stalemate point. And I was really feeling frustrated with, I was like, A, there's a lack of stories out there of people who were in abusive relationships within, you know, black, brown, queer, trans, politicized communities. 
you know, you look at the books about violence and it's all like Mary and John are, you know, in the suburbs and John hits Mary and their church is upset. And I was like, it's, you know, the dynamics are actually strikingly similar, you know, more similar than you would expect. But I was just like, yeah. I mean, you know, our, our poster was like, what happens when your abusive ex-girlfriend works at the rape crisis center? You know, what do you like things like that? Right. Um, mm. And it was also, you know, it was at, the, I mean, I was living in Toronto at the time, but I was, you know, sneaking peeks at Insight Feminists of Color Against Violence website at my day job because they had, I had dial up at home and they had fast internet. And I was like, oh my God, like these, these people are really writing about what these foundational documents about community accountability and transformative justice. Mm-hmm. And it was people from Sista to Sista, Creative Interventions, um, Critical Resistance, like lots of different groups that were like, what can we do instead? Right. Like, what can we do instead of the cops? And people were being really honest. So um, Jai and Chingy and myself were like, let's just put out a call and try and get stories together. And we really thought that there would be it'd be a little zine. And then it became four years later, it became like, I don't know, like 140 page full size zine. And then and it came out in 08. And then South End Press was like, do you want to make it into a book? And we were like, yes. And at that point, the movement was really growing a lot. And we were like, oh, okay. At, at first, we envisioned this as being a collection of survivor stories, which great, really useful, helpful. But we were like, now we want to have more about, you know, what is this thing called transformative justice? What, you know, what is community accountability? How do you do it? Because there were a lot of zines. There were a lot of little websites. But we were like, we want there to be something that you can go to a library and get, right? Mm-hmm. And so... That book came out in 2010, um, no, sorry, 2011. And so fast forward, you know, a a bunch of years, like I would say around 2017, 2018, um, you know, I would just get these emails from people because the the book went out of print when South End went bust and then it got AK Press bought it back into print. And I would get these emails from people that were like, oh, we're so grateful this resource exists. But at that point, I was like, some of this stuff is 13 years old. Like, it's not that it's not valuable, but it really blew me away that I was like, there's no other book that's in print that's really a like how to do it. And I was like, there needs to be more than one book. And often when people would write me and be like, hi, I'm in a situation. Are there resources you could suggest, readings, whatever? I mean, I'd recommend Rev at Home, but I'd be like, oh, here's these like 10 different blog posts or stuff on everyday feminism, or this uh-huh. thing here. And so I... You know, I've worked on a lot of books and the way I kind of make it feel doable in my head is I have this mantra, which is it's just like writing 15 zines, you know? So I I started thinking about it. I was like, well, we could just pull together, you know, this blog post and this thing and just kind of slap it together and throw it out there and it'll be something. But then I also was like, I don't want to do this on my own. And so I approached a Jerris because we've been building a friendship for you know, 10, 12 years, something like that at that point, and had worked together in different contexts. We um, were some of the people who, through this, you know, a decade ago, this um, North American gathering of cutie BIPOC folks working in community accountability and transformative justice, um, where we were just were like, we need to bring people together, we need to talk. And I really, I love Ajaris. I trust her political vision and her sense and her strategy and policy and practical genius so much. Um, and mm. I just was like, I would really like to work on this together. And Ajaris famously said no three times. And maybe I'll stop here. And Ajaris, I don't know if you want to jump in and like, <laughs> yeah. because you were like, yeah. I don't write books. And I was like, no, but. Ugh. I don't, I well, don't. Do um, <laughs> so 
Um, oh, wait, so, I, yeah, me say, and I, I love the Juris's writing. I think Juris is an amazing writer. And I was just like, you're writing this stuff. It's so good. Okay, stop. I'll stop. God. <laughs> <laughs> so I, yeah, so me and Leah had known each other for a while, been in um, both like friend community, um, queer and trans people of color community and, uh, um, and and I, I also just really remember, Leah, when you were working with Kuav on their Safety Fest, and mm-hmm. um, I was at the Audrey Lloyd Project, and we were kind of like sisters. Yeah, we had those sister conference calls, because it was 2010. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we would have a lot of those um, sharing, like, like, here's the hard stuff that we don't want to put out publicly about how we're struggling with TJ, right. you know, calls. Right. And so, um, like, I think I was like a, a, a witness to... Rabbit Home and um and, and I've had my own journey around writing. Like I like talking, I like speaking, like everything I've ever written down starts as me talking into my phone because like I find writing actually like I like like I'd rather have a stomach ache than write things, you know, like that that's the level, right? <laughs> so so like I, I literally feel it feels painful to me. So um whereas strategy or um how do we talk to people right it's it's a different piece but I've also really noticed that there are so many so many people kind of in that place with me where we've contributed we have ideas and those ideas don't get documented right they don't get seen and they kind of um they float away with time so I knew it was important but you know the writing of it so Yes, Leah did approach me and I said no multiple times because I was like, you're a writer, I'm not. Um, and then I realized that writing an anthology is, or editing an anthology is actually project management, which yes. I'm great at. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm a strong editor. It's literally that the first drafts I find to be some of the most painful experiences of any (laughs) process. So it was really great to be in conversation and say both, uh, because Leah was like, yeah, there's just, there's stuff out there. And I was like, well, let's think about like, what are the stories that really need to be told? Right. And what are all the ways that people do TJ or how is, how can a book be a movement building project? Right. And Mm -hmm. what what's needed from that perspective. And um, we both had deep alignment around how we wanted it to be concrete and how we wanted it to be usable and accessible and easy to read. And um, and one of my favorite moments where I know we hit the mark there is uh, one of there's a there's a crew of kind of like uh, of black organizers in New York city that I help coordinate. And, um, I have like some of, some folks like are kind of like little sisters to me. And so one of, one of my little sisters called me and was like, I have two copies of the book. And I was like, you don't need no two copies of no book. And she's <laughs> like, I have two copies. She was like, cause I have the electronic version and then I have the, the, um, you know, the, you know, the paperback. She was like, but the flesh and blood. Yeah, she was <laughs> yeah. like, so that when I need it in a meeting, I can just scroll to the page that helps mm. us move through what we need to move through and give mm. people an actual example of what this work looks like. And so, um, so yeah, uh, 
I'm, <laughs> I was really great. Like now I see myself as part of this and I've carved out Mondays to do strategy and writing. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, and I'm trying to do, I have a couple people in my life that um, send me poorly written things or poorly executed <laughs> things on subjects I know about yes. because that is the way to encourage me to do things. So they'll be like, look, this is out there. It's like, that's terrible. <laughs> and so next thing you know, I'm talking into my phone and starting to write a new thing. Mm. Beautiful. Thank y'all for the weaving. Um, and, you know, there's always the process of like when you decided to come up with the book and the process of creating the book. And then there's the year that the book actually comes out and the time that it comes into. And you all happen to have published a book on transformative justice this year um, when the uprisings happened and the pandemic happened and all this stuff is in motion and changing so rapidly, maybe more rapidly than a lot of us thought was possible. And in some ways it feels like, you know, abolition is becoming much more than a dream at a, at a wider level. So it's like this, this may be the closest we've come to the political possibility of at least police abolition being in the mainstream consciousness as a feasible idea. So people are saying things like defund the police. Well, what does it mean to defund the police? And that's on the evening news, Mm -hmm. right? So the question we had for y'all is how does it feel to have produced such a potent piece of work in this time for this time? I can start or just... Yeah, go ahead and start. Well, I think, I mean, the first thing I'll say that's kind of ironic, I mean, God has a hell of a sense of humor. So (laughs) funny. Um, (laughs) I, I just am remembering back to when we were trying to figure out touring and we're both really busy and you know, I have disabilities, you know, we both have different levels of just like body stuff and, you know, things that come up. So we were just like, we can't just hit the road for six months straight. So we were like very, so we had all these plans. And I just think back to like the months of planning that went into different waves of touring that we were very excited about doing because we had contributors from all over North America. Um, We were so excited about using tour as a way to highlight and bring people together and be like, oh, hey, and you want to you want to get involved in TJ? Here's 12 different projects in, you know, Ohio or L.A. or Toronto that you can you know plug into. And but also how I know we both were like, oh, God, April's going to be so great and also suck because we're going to be on the road for weeks. And then what happened? I'm really happy that we were able to get, you know, we, we did West Coast. We were able to do the Bay Area, L.A. and Seattle. Um, late January, early February, and then Corona hit. And I remember being on the phone and us both being like, wait, do we need to cancel it? And, you know, are people going to do Zoom readings? Like, that's all, I don't know, people might resist that. And then just the world ground to a halt. And, but the ironic thing is, is I was like, well, I mean, the book kind of sold itself because we didn't have to kill ourselves being on a million planes, you know, literally. I mean, the book, I mean, we're in like the third or fourth printing now, and it's not even been a year, which is not something, I mean, I've worked on books before, I've helped done promotion for a lot of books, I really had a sense of like, people are going to pick this up. But I was like, there's going to be like some hustle and getting people to be like, no, this is important. There's, you know, there's a market for it. And instead, people just were like, where do I buy that? Where do I buy that? Where do I buy that? And I just was like, okay, I'm really, I mostly feel really grateful that 
people are finding this useful and that it did happen at this moment, um, that people were, are, that abolition is on people's lips and that people specifically are like, okay, I get the 101, how do you actually do it? Okay, this is one of the resources that are out there that does show some real specific, you know, some of the million different ways that people are doing it. Um, mm-hmm. That feels really good to me. I'll just stop there. Yeah. Um, I mean, so, right, the converse, we were on West Coast Book Tour while the pandemic, you know, like in January and February in Seattle, mm-hmm. right, um, while there were stories of the pandemic coming out. And, um, and in some ways, the, um, I mean, so our book tour was interrupted, but it's also that like the book tour uprisings and this like sudden advance in the conversation of abolition are, we were right Right. on time in some ways. Right. And so for book tour to be interrupted for a political opening is kind of, um, right. The Mm -hmm. best move out of hard. Um, and what I like, there, there's just a part of me, maybe it's the like media training in me that wants to be like, yeah, it was us. We planned this. But, but there is the, what is particularly magical is like, there is a way that the conversation around abolition gets undermined, right? right? What people say well, you're not concrete or you can't get there or, you know, what, what's imagination going to do for me? Right. Like, (laughs) yep. (laughs) Right. All of these things. And so to have the book there as just like resource on resource on resource on resource. Right. Like, and I don't know, maybe, (laughs) maybe my inner hustle, I was like, you want a resource for your family? You want one for your cousin? You want <laughs> you want one for the club? What you want? We got it. We got it. Right? Red state, blue state. Trunk of our cars, being like, hey, hey, hey. <laughs> you know? Yes, I'm still thinking about like, yeah, we could we could sell it on Fulton Street, right? And so, um, all that that's that's a very Brooklyn reference, but yes, um, but that's very cold. I'm like Fulton Street, Fulton Street Mall. Yeah, that was a very Brooklyn reference, but, um, um, and yeah, actually now there's like Black Lives Matter painted on Fulton Street right now, and all mm. of, like, like people, like literally, like, they shut down the street and all this gear, but all this is to say is, I think it's right on time, and one thing that I'm excited, like the, you know, the pandemic really impacted us, it impacted our ability to do educational events around the book, and my, my mom and brother came to our first book event, which is such a situation for me. Aww. But they came and my brother, you know, like later, my brother's like, you keep, you kept saying TJ. I don't know what that was. And we were like, okay, we're going to have to really define <laughs> it. We're starting our events with definitions and uh-huh. stuff. And now my mom is like a damn abolitionist, yeah. right? Okay. She's, like, <laughs> She's like, what are they here for at all? And I was like, I know, mom, what are they here? Literally, mom. <laughs> you want to know? And and so um, it's wild, and I I'm I'm really excited to have the book in this time because people we don't need to prompt people to use this as an organizing tool. Like we keep getting pinged on social media by like our book group, this or this that we're going through this to build our grouping, right? And so I think that that's really exciting because my my biggest worry was um 
like I, I wanted it to be something that people would use to build with because right yes. without relationship there's not TJ um and so to be like a useful resource for one of the issues that so many people are newly coming to right, right? um I'm I'm grateful. So thank you for asking. Thank you for the persistence. Leah. I am an Aries. I am an Aries Taurus, <laughs> and you are a Cancer. Yeah, I was, you didn't like, stand a chance. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. It's, I know. It's, it's I the like, crab, though, which has like two claws, so it's equal. You know? it's yeah. But I was like, I was very clear. It's like not my lane. I have a lane. I was like, why you just try? And then at first, you're like, okay, I'll be the associate editor, and then you were like, no, I want to be the editor, editor, and I was like, great, yeah, please. please. <laughs> That yeah, was my I, idea. <laughs> I know. I was totally like, sure, you're associate editor. And then I was like, so I have an idea and another idea. Wait, wait. Instead yeah, of all that thinking idea. about this, wait, this is fascinating. And I was like, yeah, yeah, see? I'm not mm-hmm. okay. So <laughs> I'm curious to know in, in the aftermath of, or I mean, I guess y'all aren't in the aftermath. You're in the immediate wake still of of the way the, the book has come out. I'm just curious to know if there is anything you would adapt or change in the book, the version of the book that you um, have published that's now in it. What did you say? Third, you fourth, third of the um, Amazing. But just, is there anything that you would change now, now that conditions have changed? Is there anything that you're like, oh, I wish we had been able to put this in or this might be in the, in the, in the, in the sequel to Beyond Survival? <laughs> I mean, I'll... I'll start with I'm I'm so proud of the book, right? Like I'm so proud because I think it has a really deep like it's just thorough, right? It's thorough. It has a mm-hmm. lot of different perspectives, but it's also not boring <laughs> and it's also not poorly written. So, you know, I'm a perfectionist mm-hmm. as you can tell. Mm-hmm. So, um <laughs> all of that was important to me mm-hmm. and the uh, what I was thinking about this what I would, what I, there are groups, like we didn't get as many groups in the South that we would have mm-hmm. wanted. But I also think that so much of this is like TJ is so deeply under-resourced, right? So many yeah. people yeah. are doing this work all volunteer. So asking them to submit something, it was just like some, it was hard for people, right? It was hard for them to find the time. And if they're like me and they're like, I'll write that, that's, you know, that's a lot. Yeah. Um, so I wish we'd had more, like, I think if we did it now, we would probably have access to more time ourselves, um, more resources. They could see, like, a quicker, immediate benefit of that time because they would be able to kind of, like, share in community. So I think it's just that there are more stories and more groups out there, um, some that we were in touch with that couldn't submit. So all I would change is just, yeah, the, the space to support people even more. Um, mm. Because Leah really did, like Leah um, did a lot of like, when people were like, I wanna be in it, but I can't, mm-hmm. um, I can't submit anything. Leah did a lot of interviewing of folks. Um, and mm-hmm. so I think that if we could have been able to have even more to give to folks because um, of all this, the movements I've, been a part of I've never seen people give so much with so little as I've had with a TJ just echoing and building on what Ajara said I think that you know this was true for revolution starts at home too I, I think that 
the thing that people don't understand about these kinds of like black and brown queer feminist anti-violence anthologies is that, I mean, I guess in, you know, normal people world, like white people world, if you do an anthology, it's like you send out a call for submissions, then people send in their essays, and then you do an edit, and then it's published. Yeah, no, I mean, with this stuff, there was so much work to really convince people that they had something useful, that, that their work was like really valuable and um, included. And, you know, there were people who we approached to be in the book who didn't end up making it in because, I mean, like Ajara said, they were just working on, you know, really, really intense work, not a lot of resources. And they just were like, I, I can't, I, I cannot carve out the time to do this. Um, there were also, there's been moments, you know, where people, you know, have to really talk through security concerns about like, what can we publish? Like what, you know, can we talk, like we're, we're, you know, I, I, and I guess like there's, I, I think, how do I put this? I think that in a lot of the work of documenting transformative justice I think something a lot of people who are trying to do that documentation have bumped up against is that you've got different people and collectives doing such crucial work with really crucial learning in the middle of it. But then there's the question of like, how much can you say publicly? You know, like that's, it's like a kind of a thing of like, yeah, like what Ajara said is like, this needs to get documented. You know, people really need to like, something I was going to say before about what is it, you know, how does it feel to have this book out this year is I mean, something I've heard Ajara say a lot is that that I've witnessed, too, is that sometimes in this abolitionist in the New York Times 2020, you hear people saying, well, you know, this has never been done before. There's no models. And one thing that we both were adamant about, even before this year, when we were working on this book was, no, we've been doing this. You know, you can go back to 2005 to this collective to, you know, Safe Outside the System, which, you know, Ajara was working on mm-hmm. as co-leading in New York to all the, there, there are so many different you know, people who've already done this work, you know, and role models to learn from and study and emulate and change. Um, So yeah, the importance of documentation is so hardcore. And I know that for me, there's a lot of moments where I'm like, damn, there's, I can think of this, this example I really want to share from a process I've been a part of, but hmm, I don't know if I can actually say that because I don't know if I have permission or sometimes the people involved have been like, this is something where people say, oh, there's not a lot enough success stories. I'm like, I actually think there's more than we think. But a lot of times people come to their success and they're like, I don't actually want to talk about it anymore. I feel done. And that's great. And then it's like, right. But then you can't write about it. So I, I guess long story short is like, I, if there was a way that some of those stories could make it in, I would be really happy because we need, you know, more, 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 more. And I think, you know, every book is imperfect. Like it's, like we we strive we strove to be as representative of a wide variety of cultures and communities and locations and types of DJ as possible, and there's totally people that we left out, groups we left out, and now, in terms of you know if this book was coming out now or being worked on now, I'm like well it would be a completely different ballgame because. You know, I would want to include stuff about, you know, community safety during coronavirus, which Ijeris and Vision Change Win have created incredible toolkits and resources around. Um, I would want to, you know, include stuff personally that's looking at, you know, some of the work a lot of black and brown anti-violence orgs have been talking about, about, okay, so... You know, we see the rates of intimate partner violence just skyrocketing under lockdown because you can't get away, you know, yeah. like yeah. stuff like that. But that's going to be the sequel. And 
I also think that, you know, the sequel or the sequels, because I want many people to write many, many different, you know, TJ, how to do it books with examples or zines or podcasts or whatever is, um, you know, I mean, I feel like kind of like we got to put our money where our mouth is in an anti-capitalist way now, because people are like, oh, abolition. Yeah. Defund the police. OK, how do we really do this at a huge scale? You know, which. You know, I mean, it's not like the current system works at, you know, to address the amount of violence at scale, right? Now it's like, all right, well, we really gotta, we really gotta make it happen. And okay, that, so I want documentation of that. And I I want, I want some things to come out that are a little, that are both documenting what we've already done and documenting the works in progress that are going to be happening in this moment of abolition. Yeah. Mm Excellent, excellent, excellent. Um, so y'all are brilliant and we could, <laughs> we were just like, oh, there's a lot more questions that we could ask and um, we could probably go on forever and ever. Um, but one that we wanted to ask before we leave y'all is I, and I know I'm not alone in this, a lot of people have been exploring and learning a lot about the overlapping realms of abuse and harm and conflict as it all relates to transformative justice. And, you know, Autumn and I are facilitators and there's a way that all of this stuff shows up in our in the rooms in which we facilitate, the rooms that we're holding and people don't necessarily have it all clear, right? Mm-hmm. This is this, this is that. And the language can get collapsed. The ideas can get collapsed. And now transformative justice, just like abolition, the word is being thrown everywhere. <laughs> and a lot of people are like, I'm an abolitionist. Also arrest these people, or I'm an abolitionist and I'm into transformative justice and do this. And we wanted to ask you all, do you think that transformative justice is the best way to bring abolition ideas and practices into movements, particularly beyond the instances of abuse, like as a way to hold conflict and to hold other kinds of harm? Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll start with, I mean, I think it, it depends because I think violence and conflict are different, mm-hmm. right? And, um, and so if we take a broad view that how do we, well, I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm arguing with myself. Violence and conflict are different. <laughs> and I think yeah. that there's a way to navigate conflict that is about, right? Like conflict resolution processes, mediation, circle processes. And there's so, there's a lot of tools that we use both in TJ, right, that we'll also use to address conflict. But I think um, there's a piece around um, conflict doesn't have to, sometimes conflict can include harm, sometimes conflict can include violence, right? Like there can be overlap. So we have to be, but um, I I think that TJ is better suited for for violence um, because of this, this framework of right, like, what does the survivor need to be safe? What um, conditions need to shift um, within the person who's caused violence or harm, and also around this person? What are the what's the context that builds up to it? Um, as opposed to like sometimes there's a flattening that happens in conflict resolution. Like, what do you think? 
what right. do you think? Mm-hmm. Okay, where do mm-hmm. we agree? Um, <laughs> what agreements can we make, right? right. And so when right. you apply exactly. that to, to TJ, like, I think you were violent. I think I was not. Um, <laughs> you know, exactly. right? Like, right? That so is- there's, right? So there's that. But one thing I want to say about harm, I, when I was thinking about this is, I would love us to have more conversation and what more training even around what do we mean by when we're saying harm? So mm-hmm. at the time when I started to use the term, I had a really small version of it, meaning I was um, the people that I was around. We were mostly using harm when we were talking about things like stealing. Right. So like we didn't know if we called that violence, but right. we knew that we could address something like yeah, I took all the money out your wallet or I took your computer with actually a TJ lens, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think like harm has become this really cloudy word mm-hmm. that can also mean disagreement, dislike, right? Like there's just, um, we're not crisp and we, and there's a flattening of all harm, all things we cause harm are the same need the same level of intervention. So people are yes. are talking about um I I like like I've seen people who want to do um in like like people are basically talking about non consensual hugs and rape in mm-hmm. the same sentence as the same thing with the same intervention. Yeah. And I know that that's a little like I'm just a direct person so I'm just gonna say it like that, right? Yes. Um and 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 not thinking about like different tools different times different scales of harm scales of violence like it feels like we're not even allowed to actually talk about the degree of what happened and the impact of what of what happened without people feeling that we're saying this is not relevant or the impact is not relevant you know right. so yeah so from from my perspective i think like we have to get specific about what tj is used for and so we actually have to like my first question when someone says, I would like support around harm that is happening to me, I, I need to get into like, what, what specifically are you talking about? Yeah. Like what happened? Yep. What's the context? And, um, and some people don't like that. Yeah. They're like, why don't you believe me? And I, I need to be like, I can't help if I don't mm-hmm. know. Right. Yeah. Like we need the specifics of what happened to address what you need. And also how to stop right. what's happening. Yes. Right. Beautiful. And then can I jump in or is there more? Please. Yeah. yeah, no. And then, I mean, I was thinking about this question too, and it's really tricky. I second everything Ajira said. Um, some of the things I see are that when it comes to using the word harm, something I've seen happen, like it, it happen, it, things can play out both ways. So sometimes what happens is that, people don't have language for what's going on. So they'll start out being like, oh, it wasn't that bad. It wasn't abuse. It was just, you know, a crappy relationship. But then as time goes by, they go, oh my God, that was actually really bad. That wasn't abuse. So that's tricky. And then on the other hand, you've got people who are like, oh, either I've learned that I have to really upplay it to get any attention to it at all. So it's like, this was violent. And then when I listen, I go, that sounds really shitty, but like, I don't know if I would call that violence. And then that may sound like I'm not believing you as a survivor, but I'm just like, no, like I really, it sounds like your partner cheated on you and that really sucked. But I don't know if that in this context is the same thing as violence or rape or, you know, things like that. Right. So 
mm-hmm. is really complicated. Um, I know. Th- and, and the other thing is, is that, I mean, it's frustrating, but it's also amazing. Um, I think that because this is because of the work we've been doing for the past 20, 30 years as transformative justice workers, <laughs> as like, you know, radical survivors mm-hmm. and people against abuse and violence. Um you know, I mean, I remember when I was coming up, people were like, well, you know, the only abuse is this very specific narrow definition of rape or this very specific narrow definition of domestic violence. And now people, because of conversations, people are able to say, wait, that thing that didn't fit stranger rape, penis and vagina is actually something that caused me sexual harm. And I want to have a conversation about it. Or I get to have needs around it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't just have to be mm-hmm. the worst case scenario to count, right? And I, I've heard some people say, well, kind of like these kids these days, they freak out over nothing. And I'm like, actually, like, I hear you. And also, I, I also don't hear you. because I'm just like, I think it's good that people are able to be like, hey, wait, that hurt. And whatever I call it, I get to be like, yeah. stop doing that, right? Yeah. Um, so there is that. And then on the other side, um, oh, God, there's so many things. Um Oh, yeah. I think that there's a capacity issue where there's times where people have come to me and been like, that person unconsensually like shook my hand. I want you to lead a process. And I've just been like, mother of fuck, we can barely get these processes to work when it's rape or like murder. You want me to hold right, you right. to your process over that person shook your hand? Go, go fuck yourself. But I'm like, okay. When I can pull back a little bit, I'm like, it's good that people are willing to do something that's not about the cops that's like hey can we can we work this out yes and then on the flip side i really want to underline what jerry said about scale and it's really tricky because you know survivors are told all the time oh that's not that bad and we tell it to ourselves and Mm -hmm. we Mm -hmm. as you all know and we also go oh somebody else had it worse you know is it really that bad and that's a survival mechanism and it's also the way rape culture gets in our heads and that's right i also you know, as somebody who survived um, certain forms of abuse that are marginalized, like, you know, really early, you know, childhood sexual abuse that in the overt part of it that was physical happened at a very young age for my mother, which is a very, it's not what you'll read about if you just pick up incest 101. Um, I have community with a lot of friends who are ritual abuse survivors, who are cult abuse survivors, who are torture survivors. And who have survived forms of trafficking or some of all of the above. And they don't even say it, but I'm just like, yeah, you know, um, how do we bring TJ to ritual abuse? How do we bring TJ to abuse that happens in institutions Hmm. where young people are locked up and raped by so-called care providers? Like, how do we bring that lens there? And I think it's there are some examples, like I think specifically indigenous people who've worked on boarding school healing, um, the boarding school healing project, and other, you know, forms, you know, other stuff like disabled people who've been doing work for years. That's often not included in TJ. That's looking at like abuse within institutions. There's work that's already been done, but I think that that's a place where I want movements to come together and be like, OK, so when we're looking at rape in prison and rape in institutions and and ritual abuse and torture, how do we bring a TJ lens to that? And I think that we, I don't know how to say it yet, but I, I believe in our capacity to have complicated conversations about different forms of abuse and that different strategies and intensities of strategy are needed to address, you know, um, intense forms of abuse. Um, and I want us to not shy away from having those conversations because survivors deserve justice and healing. 
And also because yes. it's going to be the straw man that, you know, people bring up to be like, well, you know, we already hear what about the rapists? Then people are going to be like, well, what about the gang rapists? What about the this? And I think that we right. survivors deserve to, for us collectively to have an answer to that. Oh, yeah. yeah. And yeah, I, yeah I, I, I think that not everything needs a TJ process. And like, sometimes you need to just be like, hey, you really hurt me. Do this. Okay, sorry. Yeah. You know, like, and we can just work yeah. it out that way. Yeah, I think um, y'all are super brilliant, super brilliant and super clear. And, you know, I feel like I and others are trying to hold down the like mediation and other options, you know, because it's like everything doesn't need a TJ process. That doesn't mean you have to hold it by yourself. And, you know, I keep coming back to what y'all said at the beginning, where it's like transformative justice really is about community. It's something that happens in community, with community, in relationship and around relationship. And so much of what y'all are saying is just like, it really is relational and you have to get in conversations with people you actually know and care about in order to, um, in order to hold and be held and, and start nuancing it. So thank you all so much for the abundant time that you gave us for this conversation for the wisdom that you're bringing to the work, for the braveness with which you're moving these ideas out into the world. Um, thank you for everything that you're offering yeah. us and that you're offering our movements right now and for leading in the way that you're leading with the thorough, badass, um, no holes barred <laughs> way of doing it directly. We're really grateful to be in the same time as y'all. Thanks for listening to our show. We're on Twitter and Instagram at End of the World PC. We're also on Facebook at End of the World Show. You can make a sustaining donation to our show by visiting our page at patreon.com slash end of the world show. Another incredibly helpful thing you can do to help our show sustain itself is to write us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you are an iPhone person, we know not everyone is. But if you are, you have a responsibility here. Thank you. How to Survive the End of the World is produced and edited by the incomparable Zach Rosen, who we want to congratulate um, for his new little one, his and Shira's new little one. Um, super cute. And we're super glad that another beautiful life is here. Music for today's show comes from Tunde Alaniran and Mother Cyborg.